to Mark chapter 6. We'll be reading uh, verses 30 to 44. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to uh, 44. So good morning. If you're a visitor here today, if you're visiting us here today, you're very welcome. Come again, as you've probably gathered from lots of bits about this morning. You know what? We love to worship Jesus. We love it. Um, And some of you might think that's a really unusual thing to say. But we do, from the very bottom of our heart. So much so, actually, that over the last few um, months, we've been looking at the life of this Jesus as portrayed in uh, the Gospel of Mark, Mark, one of the books in the Bible, chapter by chapter, systematically. Um, as we've said before, in the as we've said before, in these reliable historic accounts, Mark gives us the real Jesus, the controversial, the often controversial Jesus, not just a blonde, blue, uh, blue-eyed, um, 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 not just a blonde, uh, blue-eyed, pretty Jesus, not just a, a cardboard cut-out, safe Jesus that doesn't offend us or challenge us. No. The real deal, Jesus. Outrageous, shocking, breathtaking, often surprising. You see, Christianity is not just a bunch of good ideas. It's not just a spiritual path. It's not just a set of rules and regulations, as you've heard me say um, many times before. No, it's about the person, this person, Jesus, and how his story radically changes your story forever. If you're not a Christian here this morning, watch out. You might just meet this Jesus. In fact, you probably already have. So let's read, shall we, the next miraculous, gripping installment uh, from Mark. Mark 6, um, verses 30 to 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wage. Are we to go and spend that much much uh, on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves, 
Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten that day totaled five thousand. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful story. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing account of your miraculous provision. Thank you, Jesus, that when we come to the Bible, we don't just see these stories as, as, as entertaining little things, but actually, you are teaching us. You are the great teacher. You want to You're coming to us through your word, and by your word, you are saying something that pierces our heart. I pray, Lord God, that we're open to you this morning. I pray, Lord God, that our hearts are open to you to be transformed and changed. And by your spirit upon us here this morning, let this word that I bring this morning come alive. Be with me, Lord Jesus. Pour out your spirit. Be with us, Lord Jesus. Pour out your spirit as we listen to your truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, feeding the 5,000. I'm actually getting quite hungry myself. This is a very famous account, isn't it? We've all read it. In fact, more recently, God has been speaking to us as a church through this miracle, hasn't he? Primarily challenging us and encouraging us about faith. Faith for what? Faith for the impossible. That's what. Paul Paul Woodward over the last few months has been increasingly bringing this story to our attention on Sunday mornings, at prayer meetings, at leaders' gatherings, at elders' get-togethers, when we're talking about buildings, when we're talking about growth, when we're talking about finances, many things. He's been bringing it to the forefront, hasn't he? (coughs) Question. What goes in your head, goes on in your head, when you're thinking about Jesus feeding the 5,000? Now, I know some of you will be like me when I used to picture this event. I used to often think of this story as a warm fuzzy. How lovely, what a pretty story. Jesus on a beautiful hillside, like in the sound of music, Um, swaying trees, everyone's hungry. So what does Jesus do? He puts on a lovely, magic picnic. Rugs out, flasks warm, everyone filled full. What a lovely day with Jesus. Oh. You know what's coming, don't you? That is not what this story is is about. Quite the opposite, really. When you study it, when you look at it in historical context, this story is actually about a revolution, a revolt, a rebellion. There's nothing warm or fuzzy about it. As I've opened commentaries and Googled this passage over the last a few weeks, what has become clearer and clearer is that what's happening here is actually intense. It's very scary. It's quite unsettling. And in the midst of this fervor, this frenzy, our Jesus masterfully, powerfully, instead of rising 
to the majority frenzy. Instead, he paints a huge vision of what the radical, upside-down, unexpected kingdom of God looks like. How Jesus' revolution looks totally different to mine or your revolution. And so really, that's what I want to unpack this morning under four headings. Firstly, everyone's looking for a revolution. They are. Secondly, Jesus' revolution is jaw-dropping. It's radically different to what we normally think a revolution should look like. Thirdly, Jesus chooses the inadequates, the insufficients, the are-nots for his revolution. And finally, the cross says, come the revolution. Four points. Firstly, everyone's looking for a revolution. What do I mean? How is this story about a revolution? Well, let me explain. Verse 32 and verse 35 tells us that they went away, the disciples and Jesus, by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. That's what it says, a remote place, away from the surrounding countryside and villages. So where exactly was Jesus going? Well, when you compare the other accounts of this story, when you look at the maps following Jesus' journey, it would seem that he's going to the rural parts, the hill district, the remote, um, the remote regions of Galilee and around. He's getting out there. These were the places at the time where all the guerrilla freedom fighters hung out, hid out. You see, Jesus was retreating to where the revolutionary resistance to the Roman imperial role, rule was at its greatest, was at its height. This was, where, this was actually the center of the zealot movement, and the zealots were the terrorists of their day, according to Rome. Last week, we read a horrific example of Rome's corrupt, brutal, murderous regime, didn't we? As John the Baptist's head was delivered to Herod, Herod Antipas, that nasty piece of work. As Simon put it, his head on a plate. That would have only added to the, the tension here. John, you see, John the Baptist had many followers. Make no, make no mistake, this wasn't a beautiful picnic with Jesus. This was a very heated, unstable environment. When it says 5,000 men, it probably means 5,000 heads of family, families, which probably means um, a gathering of about 50, 15 to 20,000 people in a totally remote place, angry, ready for action, outraged. And do you know what? That they were there for one reason, and one reason only. You can read about it in uh, the disciple John's account of this story. He makes it crystal clear, verse uh, John 6, 15. They intended to come and make him, Jesus, king by force. <clears throat> That's what they were there for. The people were enraged and they wanted a military leader, a political leader. They wanted someone to lead them in a revolution. 
And Jesus knew it. Verse 34 tells us that when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's what it says. Now, that's not very clear to us, but what Mark is getting across to his readers here is not just the usual pastoral, cuddly image of a shepherd, but rather he's quoting from Numbers 27.15, Moses' prayer to God at the end of his life as they're about to take the promised land. And as Moses asked God for a successor, a political military leader, Joshua actually, the Bible is full of his military and political exploits, isn't it? Numbers 27, 15 reads like this. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over his community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like a sheep without a shepherd. They wanted a new Moses, a new Joshua, a revolution, a revolt, to put everything right that was so, so wrong. You know what? So do we. That's how it is today. People are desperate for change. They want a revolution. Just turn the telly on. Just turn the pages uh, of the newspapers. This world isn't how it should be. This world is massively broken. People, <coughs> people are angry and frustrated. And the, question that, and the question that people keep asking again and again, keep looking to, is who can put it right? What can we do? Where did we go so wrong? Who can we blame? Just the other night, um, some of you might have seen this as well, just the other night, myself and Charlotte watched this heart-wrenching Channel 4 documentary, Finding Mum and Dad, about two brothers, Daniel and Connor, who were playing at a party. Pretty normal, really, until it became clear that this was no ordinary party. This, it wasn't Christmas, it wasn't their birthday. No, this was an adoption party. A party for children who had been separated from their parents and failed all the usual attempts to place them with a mom and dad. With them in this, uh, in this documentary was their foster mom, Katie, hoping that someone might see them at this party. Someone might gaze their way, might want to be their forever family, as they termed it. Just someone. The documentary said... For youngsters like Daniel and Connor, this was their final chance to make a good impression on a potential parent. If they didn't, they would go into long-term care, probably be separated from one another, and never be able to call anyone mum or dad again. And as this documentary progressed, after at least three parties, no one wanted them. And it went on to say, but while Connor and Daniel had a great time dressed up as superheroes at the party, Katie, their foster mom, hated every moment. It was like trying to sell a product that nobody wanted. She says, we played with the boys all day, but no one came near them. I wanted to wrap them up and run out of there. It felt very personal and very distressing. I came back and sobbed my heart out. We live in a desperately broken world. And although we try and mask it, cover it, distract ourselves deep, deep down, 
We just can't escape it. We want a revolution. And to that desperate yearning, that deep, deep soul longing, Jesus says, with all compassion, with all mercy, with all grace and with all wisdom, I'm coming to you. Jubilee, where are you looking to for your revolution, for your change? Because we're all looking. What is it that you're depending on the most to see things through? What is it? Who is it? What is it that you look to to give you deepest satisfaction and security? What wakes you up at night in a cold sweat? What are you fearful of losing the most? Is it God? Is it really Jesus? In a world of desperation and brokenness, only Jesus, only Jesus can make sense and make right the mess of the world that we live in. And if you haven't realized that yet, just give it time, because you probably will. So point one, everyone's looking for a revolution. Everyone's looking to someone, to something for change. And Jesus, in all his compassion, says, I've come to you. Do you hear that? Do you take that into your very soul? Point two, Secondly, Jesus' revolution is jaw-dropping. It's radically different. You see, when you see what this story is really about, when you see what the people here are after from Jesus, suddenly the shocking nature of Jesus' reply in verse 34 baffles you. It hits you in the face. Do you see it? Look, Jesus is out in the middle of nowhere. The people are crying out for a revolution. We want war. We want Joshua, a new Moses. We want an Iron Man 4. Come on, Jesus. Give it to us. Are you the man? That's what they're crying out for. So what does Jesus do? So he began teaching them many things. Jesus, in answer to their war cry, doesn't give them weapons, but gives them a Bible study followed by a loaf of Warburton's bread. Am I the only one who finds that a bit weird? Do you see how seemingly crazy this answer seemed to this riotous, frenzied crowd? But as I said last time, when I spoke last time, Jesus never, ever wastes a moment. He's always totally in control. Jesus always knows what he's doing. And in the midst of all the cries for a revolution, instead of giving out weapons and bombs, as we even see happening now in the Middle East, probably now, right today, he gives out his word and bread. And by doing so, he is categorically saying, I haven't come to deal out death. No, I have come out. I've come to deal out life, gospel life, life to the very full, so that you can live in all the wondrous truth of God. And that's what he gives to us, Jubilee. You see, God's word is power to us. Don't knock it. It's life to us. That's the significance of bread here. I know, I know we kind of think, think of bread and what's the deep symbolic meaning of bread, maybe carbohydrates or McDonald's or something. But to them, it symbolized a life. 
Jesus' words were deep, deep nourishment to their souls, to our souls. I love what Jeremiah says in chapter 15. It says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I ate them. Is that how you see it? Jubilee, we live in a world that hungers for truth, the truth of God in his son, Jesus. That might, that might not be the way we... Uh, that, uh, they might not see it that way, the world. The atheist Jean-Paul Sartre once pitifully wrote that God does not exist, I cannot deny, that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. And Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. How do you feed your hunger? Do you read the Bible? It's a serious question. Do you ask God, the Holy Spirit, to bring it alive for you? Are you in deep, deep expectation that it will change you, transform you? Are you studying it with a zeal and a passion? Are you letting others know about it in a way that they understand? Your friends, your kids, your colleagues, different people. Is it really bread for you? Do you see it that way? I love studying the Bible, not in a kind of a professor's, uh, professor's snooty snotbag kind of way. We need clever people, but, but I guess I'm just not wired that way. I love studying it for what it is, what it says. I love putting myself into situations where its truth is totally alien to people. Actually, that's, that's most places, by the way, if we're living our lives by the will of God amongst drug addicts, with Hindus, with Muslims, with my rich dad friends, with prisoners at Alpha. That's where the Word of God needs to be. Where are you taking it? I love engaging people genuinely in a discovery of who God is. I want to know what they think. I want to know why they think what they think instead of me just making it up for myself. Questions, questions, not just spouting off what they don't want to hear. I'm interested in them and what they have to say. And to those settings, lovingly, caringly, sensitively, sincerely, I try and show them how the gospel is different, how the gospel is so releasing, how it works, how it can change and transform, transform them, how it in- introduces them to the bread of heaven, the very word of God, the reason for life. This Jesus. Jubilee, take this seriously and joyfully. As the Apostle Paul urges the church in Colossians 3, I just love the way he puts it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do it, let it, regularly, continuously. So point one, everyone's after a revolution. Where are you looking for your where are you looking for yours? Point two, Jesus' gospel revolution is radically different, rooted in the never changing, always reliable, countercultural truth and wisdom of God. And thirdly, Jesus chooses 
the inadequates, the insufficients, the are-nots, you and me, for his revolution. <clears throat> That's actually probably the most fundamental point here. That's what this story is about. Uh, 1 Corinthians puts this point brilliantly. 1 Corinthians 1. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world, you and me, uh, to shame the wise. God chose the, chose the weak things of this world, you and me, to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, yep, you guessed it, you and me, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him in themselves. What catches our attention in this story, what grips us most of all, is the miracle, isn't it? This isn't just any, this isn't just ordinary bread. It's miraculous bread from heaven. Who provided it? God did. Who helped him provided it? No one. When Jesus says to his disciples, you give them something to eat, he's asking them to do the impossible, and they know it. Why do they know it? Verse 37, that would take more than half a year's wages, grumpy grump. Are we, going, are we to spend that much money on these guys, Archie, Archie? They're saying in frustration and exasperation, Jesus, you're asking to us to do the impossible. Stop it. And of course, that is Jesus' whole point. Jesus is saying to them, what he's saying to us here, now, Jubilee. Until you see what I'm calling you to do is impossible in your strength. Until you realize the huge gap between what you're able to do and what I'm able to do. Until then, only until then, are you qualified to do anything I ask of you. Ouch. One Bible commentator writes this. It is not God's intention that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. Rather, he wants, that we, he wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks which we think are adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God at all. The church is always in a crisis and always will be. There will be difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite these things, but rather they are precisely the conditions requisite, required for the doing of it. That's quite sobering. Jubilee, this is increasingly the journey that God is calling us to. It is. It's a journey of faith. Faith to see God move. Faith to see the impossible. Over the years, God has been faithful. God has been good. He has, hasn't he? He just has. But I believe we're entering a season where we need, where we need the miraculous provision of God um, where we need to see the miraculous provision of God more than we've ever done before, where our reliance on him, our trust in him, our complete surrender to him will be like nothing we've ever had to do before. 
A season where God demonstrates his wonder-working provision, where he teaches us about faith like we've never had to have before. And it starts with us individually, you and me. It starts with our closeness to him. It starts with our prayer times with him. It starts as the gospel keeps moving us, shaping us, lifting our heads. It starts in community together as we share and celebrate with one another his greatness, as we shape one another, as we challenge one another. It starts with him, Jesus, being right there at the very center of everything we do. Are you up for this journey? Finance has been on my head quite a lot recently. Paul has been saying to us for some time, really, uh, finances is going to be our biggest battle area. It really is. Jesus said it all the time. He knew that in many ways, money, finances, how we handle, how I handle possessions is the key indicator for us of our spiritual life, about where our priorities are. Jesus is the one who said, your wallet is the, pla- is the place where your heart reveals itself the most. Slightly paraphrased. But God says, trust me. I remember Paul bringing this one Sunday morning, Malachi 3.10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says Jesus, says uh, the Lord Almighty. Did you hear that? Test me, trust me, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will, there will not be room enough to store it. Do you believe God tells us to test him? He tells us to trust him, to see if he will provide for us um, as we give to him in eye-popping proportions even particularly when it all seems so impossible, when the numbers don't add up. What an invitation. Think about it. How can we outgive God? We can't. Jubilee, at the beginning of this new year, can I encourage you to revisit your giving? We don't talk a lot about this on Sunday mornings. But God does. Jesus does. Throughout the Bible, he's always talking about it. If you're not giving regularly to the church, can I ask you to prayerfully seek God's wisdom on that, no matter how much it is, no matter how much you start with? If you're already giving, will you consider giving more? Will you step out and trust him more? I'm not manipulating you. I'm not asking you to be foolish. I'm asking you to be faithful. Ask God. Go on that adventure of giving with him. Because it's been been a real privilege over the years to watch our cumulative, your overwhelming giving. But I believe the next season is a season where God is not just going to release enough, but more than enough. And it starts with us, me, you, our walk of faith with him, our joy-filled, trusting adventure with him. Are you up for that journey? Are you up for that adventure? So if you want to start giving to the church, thank you very much. Why don't you collect one of the envelopes at the welcome desk telling you how to do it or speak to one of us? It's very important. God increasingly over the last few months has been saying to me, Raj, it's time for you to make big asks. And those big asks start in the house of God. 
So point one, everyone's looking for a revolution. Point two, Jesus' revolution is radically difficult, different. Point three, only the inadequate are adequate in the kingdom of God. Only the insufficient are sufficient. Only when, you're no, when you know the, uh, your call is impossible and you go and do it anyway, only when you know it's going to take a miracle and you do it anyway, only then will he begin to work in and through you. In fact, only then will he use you most. Finally, point four. The cross says, come the revolution. You see, all revo- you see, when you look on the telly, if you look on films or look at history, all revolutions start with a shot. They start with an act of bloodshed, an act of brutality, don't they? Storm the fortress, invade the city, throw the man overboard. Come the revolution. That's what this large gathering was expecting. That's what, that's what they were there for. That's what they were looking to Jesus for. And little did they know it, that's exactly what he intended to do. When Jesus took the bread and gave thanks and broke it, he was pointing to a coming reality, a shot, an act of bloodshed, an act of brutality. In Mark 14, 22, we're going to come on to that later. A few chapters on, Jesus is sitting at the Passover meal with the very same people, his disciples, just before he gets arrested. And right there before him, he uses these very same words that he uses here. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. You see, on the cross, the revolution started. On the cross, Jesus became not just a new Moses or a new Joshua, but the ultimate Moses, the ultimate Joshua. This shot, this gruesome act of violence on the cross paved the way for the ultimate exodus, the ultimate freedom, liberation, not just from political and military oppression, but from the greatest of our enemies, our soul-destroying defiler, sin and death. You see, for this bread, as we're going to be breaking bread this morning, but for this bread to bring us nourishment, to give life to me, it has to be broken. There's no other way. It's either me or the bread. And on the cross, the bread of heaven, Jesus was torn apart for you. He was broken so that we would live. He took on our greatest enemies. He led the revolt against sin and death. And in the midst of his agonizing, tormenting, bloody ordeal, he won. Victory. It is finished, he said. Ephesians 1.17, the message version, says this. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we are free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free, either. Abundantly free to love and follow him. 
Colossians 2 says, when you were stuck in your old uh, sin-dead life, that's what it looked like, that's the truth of our lives before we met Jesus. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. But God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant cancelled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. And do you know what? When you see him doing that for you, you'll be a revolutionary like no other. You will. As you see him pouring his life out for you, it'll change you from the very inside out as you pour out your life for others in giving, in service, in fighting poverty and justice, in being salt and light where God has put you, in going to the nations. And not just doing this for the people you like either, not just the ones who deserve it, but actually to the very, very opposite, the ones who don't deserve it at all, just like you and me. Jubilee, my prayer this morning as I close is that you and me, we would let the amazing grace of God start a revolution in each of us. Nothing less, nothing less. Just ask him. Let's pray, shall we? Yeah, thank you, Lord, that you are an amazing teacher. I thank you, Lord, for this wonderful story. I pray, Lord God, I pray, Lord God, that this, that this miraculous provision changes us from the very inside out. I pray, Lord God, that we, that we are a people who step out for you. I pray, Lord God, that we are a people who have faith for the impossible. I pray, Lord God, as we move into uh, this next season of Jubilee, as we're looking to buildings, looking to grow our leadership teams, looking for uh, more groups, looking for this net to span greater and further across Teesside, as new groups uh, come on board, as, 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 um, as, we're, as we start our new Alpha, Lord God, uh, as we increasingly become more diverse, as we keep going to the nations and seeing your wonderful, wonderful provision. I pray, Lord God, that you will keep building our faith, that you'll keep depositing faith in us. I pray that you'll keep um, spurning us on on this adventure with you. I, keep, I pray that you'll keep challenging us about our part in all of this as we give as we serve, as we say yes to you, I am here. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to break bread now. We're not going to particularly have any music um, again. We're going to break bread.